I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back along to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football family. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiou, and I'm delighted to say that we're going to be looking back on an Arsenal victory. The Gunners are back to winning ways after what was a difficult period. We have to say that. We have to acknowledge that. We'll get into Yesterday, in a lot of detail on this show, we'll talk about the significance of Arsenal, as I say, getting back to winning ways. We'll talk a little bit about Manchester City's result and, and what that means and, and kind of the wider context of it all. We're going to talk Jorginho. We're going to talk Zinchenko. We're going to talk Martinelli. We're going to talk Saka. We're going to talk Martinez. There is so much to get through today. I can't wait. Um, and you know what? I'll be honest with you. My job normally is an absolute joy. The last week or so, it's been quite tough. It's been quite difficult. Um, you know, the Everton result, it was a, a kind of, or it was packaged up by a lot of people, myself included, probably as a bit of a one-off. Poor performance, not at the level that we know we can be. And then add to that the Sean Dyche factor. Uh, it was a result that was kind of coming, if that makes sense. Then we played Brentford. Didn't play very well against Brentford and obviously were robbed by a, a shocking VAR decision for which Lee Mason has ultimately been let go now by the PGMOL. And, you know, they'll say it was by mutual agreement and all of this. I'm not buying that. And we'll probably debate that on another show. You know, have they set a dangerous precedent by allowing or, or by moving on a referee off the back of a decision like that? We'll get into all of that stuff um, throughout the course of the week. Um, but yeah, obviously disappointment against Brentford and then we came up against Manchester City and we all know what a juggernaut they are, what an incredible side they are, how much talent they have. And we looked at that game as an opportunity for us to not only go and put right the damage that we suffered, you know, by dropping points against Brentford, but also to kind of try and find a big psychological win. And we couldn't do that. We were beaten on our own patch by a Manchester City side who in the second half just really turned it on. And were more efficient, as Mikel Arteta put it, in both penalty boxes. And then you come off the back of that very quick turnaround game on Wednesday night, game early on Saturday, away at Villa Park against Unai Emery. And I talked to you guys in the preview about the narrative that was always going to come with facing Unai Emery. The fact that people were almost waiting for us to slip up so that they could say, you know, former Gunners boss uh, derails their title challenge, all of that stuff. And so on paper, this looked like a really horrible fixture. And it wasn't because, you know, we've had a bad time at Villa Park. If you look at our record in the Premier League overall at Villa Park, it's been really, really positive. But there was always uh, that thing in the back of your mind, the Unai Emery factor, the fact there was an early kickoff, the quick turnaround, all of those things, I think, caused a lot of Arsenal fans to feel quite anxious going into this game. And rightly so, because we started it really, really poorly. Look, we're going to get into all of that in a minute, but I just want to say a few hellos because there's plenty of you with us uh, live in the chat right now. A uh, big hello to Des, to Matthew, to Delisu, to Afsar, to Raphael, uh, to Steve, to uh, Sweet Munchkin, uh, to Nav, to Temi, uh, to Popeye, to Ahmad, who says, Harry, I was worried about you. I even checked your other social media platforms to make sure that you had posted about the game. Have a nice day. I'll tell you a little bit about my story yesterday uh, in a minute. Um, big hello to Derek, to Moss, uh, to Henry, to Wesbird, uh, who's getting over COVID again. Wish you all the best. Uh, wishing you a speedy recovery. Big hello to Glenn, Gary, uh, Mighty Balls, Terrence, um, Deepak, uh, who else we've got? Amira. Uh, Mike Carpenter is with us. Adam Daniel Hambo is in there. Sergeant Sponge, uh, who says, um, morning, Harry. I think I aged 10 years from that game. <laughs> uh, Wondering Minstrel is with us as well. Mike Carpenter uh, says, hit the likes, people. Yes, please do. Uh, Boyce, all of you in the chat. Big hello. Hope you're good. Hope you're well. Okay. <sighs> My story yesterday. This is yesterday was a weird day for me, right? So as I mentioned to you guys in the preview show, I'd been asked to go and do uh, full commentary um, as the lead commentator on BBC London, digital radio, 
for the game between Millwall and Sheffield United, which was a big game in terms of the championship. You know, Millwall pushing for a playoff place. Uh, lots of people asking the question as to whether they're good enough to go on and do that, whether they have the depth, but they keep answering those questions. And they were taking on a Sheffield United side who had been beaten in midweek by Middlesbrough and obviously were now starting to look over their shoulder and probably even more so now after um, after yesterday's result. But I was given that opportunity and, you know, for anybody who wants to become a commentator or, or wants to progress in that field like I do, that's the type of opportunity that you need to take and you need to grasp with both hands and you need to do a really good job of it. So as difficult as it was for me to take on a game at the same time as Arsenal, it wasn't even like one was early and I could watch it and then sort of jump into the other one. They were at exactly the same time. And obviously my colleagues at BBC London were well aware of that. They knew that it was a big deal for me to kind of be sitting there commentating on one game where my team were involved in another uh, up in the Midlands. And, you know, they were updating me on how the game was going. But the way it was happening was, yeah, it was just, it was quite the experience. So obviously, when you're the lead commentator, when you're the, the main commentator, you you cannot take your eyes off of the game that you are covering. You cannot look at your phone. You cannot be scrolling through your laptop. The The absolute maximum you can do is take your eyes off of the pitch for a moment here or there when you think the time is right so that you can um, check your notes and so that you can, you know, make sure that you get the points across that you want to during the commentary. And we'd sent a reporter up to Villa Park uh, who was there uh, watching the game and obviously was reporting. And the main game on BBC London was the Millwall-Sheffield United game. And I had a producer in my ear who would say to me whenever there was a goal or anything that required an update at Villa Park would say, let's go over to Villa Park, there's been a goal or let's go over to Villa Park for an update. So I am literally sitting there covering one game, getting messages in my ear saying there's been a goal at Villa Park, throwing over to the reporter that's at Villa Park and then trying to contain my reaction one way or the other. So obviously early on, Aston Villa take the lead. I have to throw over. I get told that in my ear. I'm none the wiser at that point. So trying to deal with my reaction whilst trying to stay professional and keep going with my commentary on a completely different game was one of the toughest experiences I've probably ever had since moving into the whole broadcasting world. It was, as Mark says in the chat, it was torture. And then you're told there's another goal. So you throw over again and 1-1 one, one, and you're a little bit more chilled and you're a little bit more relaxed. And then Villa go in front again and you're sitting there thinking, Jesus, man. And then obviously in the second half, Zinchenko scores, it gets to 2-2 and you're thinking, OK, you know, there's plenty of time. I, I glanced at the clock in the game that I was doing and obviously gauged that the time would be pretty similar um, and sort of sat there thinking, you know what, there's there's a fair, fair while left here. So there's a good chance that Arsenal do manage. Uh, to get the result that we're searching for and that we wanted. But bear in mind, I've got no idea really how the performance is going, how Arsenal are performing. Um, you know, you're getting short 30, 40 second updates at absolute best. And um, and that's that. And I'd heard there'd been another goal at Villa Park. And what I tried to do was throw over there as quick as possible because I wanted to know what was going on. But I actually made a bit of a mistake because I threw over at a time where it didn't look like anything was happening in the Millwall game. But by the time it cut back to me, there'd been a goal. So yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a, an experience. It was tough. It was difficult. Um, but then to hear that Arsenal had scored the third in my ears kind of made it all worth it because at that point we'd split. So for those of you that don't listen to BBC London, there's a split, right? So there's BBC London on FM, on the radio, and then there's BBC London on digital radio as well. And what happens is at points we split and one game will be on one of those and another game will be on another. So at two o'clock there was a split and the guys on FM were previewing and building up to all the 3 p.m. games. And so I was no longer having to throw over to Villa Park for the updates that was now being done by the presenter in the studio. But at that point, um, when Arsenal scored the third, I get told in my ears, Harry, it's Arsenal three, Aston Villa two, Jorginho. And that was the moment 
that was the moment um, that I really kind of struggled to keep it in. I kind of gave it a little fist pump in the press box at Millwall. People around me looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? What is this guy celebrating about? And then when the fourth went in and I got told that, the, the relief that came across me was just unbelievable. I did come home, obviously, straight off the back of that and watched the entire Arsenal game on record. And I can tell you, it was a very pleasant experience. When you know the outcome of a game like that, it is um, it is much more enjoyable because you don't go through the stress. And I actually think, and one of the reasons why I always, if you guys have noticed, I always watch a game back afterwards is because I think once you've processed what happened and you, you know, you're past the kind of emotional bit, in terms of like feeling it in real time, I think you often make better judgments. And so my assessment of the game um, yesterday will probably be a little bit different to those of you that maybe watched it live. And, I, and I'd say that if you probably sat and watched it again, you'd probably be maybe a little bit more aligned with with what I'm going to say. Um, but I mean, the first half performance, it wasn't good. Um, you know, there were sloppy passes. There was just a lack of cohesion in certain areas. Um, you know, there was loads of things that were missing. There were loads of things that we didn't do anywhere near well enough. But actually, when you watch the game back, and you got to bear in mind, right, the only time I got to kind of check on social media yesterday during the game was at half time when we'd gone to a break as well. I had sort of t- eight to ten minutes where I could literally check my phone, have a look what was going on. And I read a few tweets and there was a lot of people being very critical of the first half display. When I watched the first half display back, I'm not saying it was good because it wasn't. There were a lot of things that Arsenal desperately needed to improve on in the second half. But what what I kind of took away from watching it back after the event is that Aston Villa didn't really create much. It wasn't as if Arsenal had their backs against the wall. It very much felt like Arsenal had a lot of the ball didn't really manage to cut through Aston Villa in the way they'd have liked, created a couple of opportunities, but nowhere near enough. And Aston Villa, who had created a handful of opportunities, had somehow been incredibly efficient, taken both of them and found themselves in front in a game that probably on the balance of what I saw in the first period should have been level. Um, The first goal that Arsenal conceded was really, really poor on Alexander Zinchenko's part, I thought. And I've talked about Zinchenko in the last couple of weeks. He's someone that I don't think has been at the same level that we've seen uh, recently. I think that people have become or teams have become wise to um, sort of what it is that he does and what it is that he brings. The inverted fullback thing is becoming a little bit predictable at times. And, and for me, there is a case and there is an argument at certain points that you need to change that up a little bit and that maybe Kieran Tierney coming on wouldn't be the worst option in the world because he gives you something different when you're in possession and when you're attacking. So Zinchenko gives the ball away really poorly, I thought, and then there's an early ball over the top of of William Saliba for Ollie Watkins to run onto. I think Saliba does the right thing in terms of showing him outside. I think that's what you've got to do as a centre-back. That's defending 101. That's what you're taught. He does that. But just watching it again and being sort of super critical, I don't think that Saliba shows him wide enough. I think if Saliba's a little bit more aggressive in the way that he closes him down and he gets his body angle right, then I think he forces Ollie Watkins that little bit wider, which closes the angle further and makes it much more difficult for him to fire past Aaron Ramsdale. Not taking anything away from Watkins. It's a wonderful take. It's a wonderful step over, you know, shift out to the the left foot, and then it's a brilliant finish back across the goal. But Saliba just looked for me. I don't know if he looked a bit tired at that point. And it's silly to say because it was early in the game, really early in the game. Maybe he hadn't got up to speed with the pace of the game just yet, but it just felt a little bit half-hearted from William Saliba for me. And I know that I'm being massively critical here. And I know that this is probably me sort of nitpicking to a degree, but I just felt that he could have showed him that little bit wider and that would have made the finish more difficult for Ollie Watkins, therefore reducing the chances of him scoring. That's how I saw it, sort of having watched it back. And then Arsenal go and find the equaliser through Bukayo Saka. Um, the ball worked into the, into the box from the right-hand side. 
uh, headed back into the danger area by Tyro Mings. That was a really poor header, I thought, uh, from him into a really dangerous area. But you can't take anything away from Bukayo Saka because that finish into the roof of the net is fantastic. You know, to be able to produce that out of instinct, like in the moment, just like as a snapshot, I think is really, really impressive. And obviously that levels the playing field. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, do you know what? We are, you know, we suffered an early setback, but we've responded really, really well. And the fear yesterday was always that because confidence was a little bit down, because confidence wasn't at the level that it has been throughout the majority of the season, you always felt like a, a, another setback or, or the more setbacks we face, the harder it is going to be to come through them because that bit of doubt, it does creep in. It really, really does. And um, so we draw a level when you're thinking brilliant, excellent. Then Villa go and score another one. And that one was a really disappointing goal to concede for me. I mean, the way the ball's cut back to the edge of the box, you know, it, it's one of those cases where you don't seem to have the midfield alert enough, you know, aware enough of what's going on around them. Maybe there's too much focus on the player in the wide position, not enough on those making the runs from deep in the middle. And you know that Aston Villa with the likes of Felipe Coutinho, Emi Buendia have that type of movement. Um, you know, it just felt like it was it was too easy. It was too straightforward. And that must have been, for Mikel Arteta, incredibly frustrating at the time. What I would say, and I'm going to come on to talk about Jorginho in detail a little bit later on. I don't think there's any doubt that when it comes to the defensive side of the game, Thomas Partey is at a much higher level. And I actually think that Thomas Partey probably protects the edge of the penalty area a lot better than Granit Xhaka can or Jorginho can. And we'll discuss that a little bit later on. But it just felt like we were lacking that bit of protection. We've talked a lot about Jorginho's lack of mobility at times. And what that can do sometimes is it can put us in a position where if he does commit for a ball, he isn't then back in the position to defend. I'm not pinning that goal on him. But I just think as a midfield, you could see that we weren't as equipped to deal with the transition as we are when Thomas Partey's in the side. And again, we'll come on to discuss that in a little bit more detail. Um, what else have we got? Just kind of touching on it. Big hello to Rob, who joins us as well. He says, morning, lad, still exhausted after yesterday. Two words, bedlam and karma. <laughs> I love it. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Terence uh, highlights that we've got a problem with conceding goals early on. We really, really do. Um, and that's surprising because one of the things you would have associated with Mikel Arteta's team over the last 12, 18 months is the fast starts and the desire to really go out and take the game to people from the off. So that is a little bit frustrating. Um, Mark says, shocking that Villa can play those straight balls through the midfield. After Zinchenko gives the ball away, there is still so much that can be done to avoid their goal. Absolutely. You're right. Um, you're right. But the way Zinchenko lost possession at times was was a little bit frustrating for me. I mean, honestly, it's, obviously it's less frustrating for me because I was watching it knowing what the outcome was going to be and knowing that those errors in the longer term, in the context of the game, were not going to be costly for us in the end. But yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit frustrating. It's, it was a little bit loose. And, and you don't want to see that, you know, from this Arsenal side. Um, Amira says, our defence looked weirdly scared at times. They looked like they didn't know what to do for the goals we conceded. There's just a little bit of indecision, wasn't there? Um, there was just a little bit of indecision in certain moments. And that can be with regards to how quickly you go out and close down the player that, you know, is in possession. There was one instance in the uh, second half really late on where, Villa had a counter-attack. I'm trying to remember who it was. Was it Leon Bailey? Is it the one where he hits? Yeah, Leon Bailey has a shot. Ramsdale makes a fantastic save, pushes it up onto the crossbar. But there was a bit of hesitation from Fabio Vieira, who was back defending, and he didn't seem to know whether to tuck in or whether to go out and confront the player. And in the end, he kind of gets caught in two minds and does neither of those two things. So just, yeah, signs of indecision in our defensive play. Um but perhaps that comes from the lack of confidence. Perhaps that comes from where we were at going into this game. And hopefully that will improve off the back of a really positive result. Um, anyway, we take it on. Second half, Zinchenko. 
Never scored a Premier League goal in his life prior to yesterday. Not even for Manchester City. That stat will surprise people. I heard that stat maybe two or three weeks ago and it shocked me. I was like, no, that can't be right. There's no way that Zinchenko, all those years at Manchester City, never scored a goal in the Premier League. I just found that impossible to comprehend. And then I looked it up and it is absolutely 100% true. So Zinchenko scoring yesterday was not just significant for us in terms of the result, but it was huge for him. His first Premier League goal. What a finish that is, by the way. You know, he gets the ball in that area, sort of on the edge of the box. It doesn't look like the angle really suits the, a near post effort. And Zinchenko just connects with it so cleanly. Uh, wonderful direction in the shot, in, impeccable accuracy. And there you have it, you know, fantastic goal. And, um, you know, you see from Zinchenko, as soon as that ball goes in, what his intentions are. It isn't about... Uh, you know, running over to the fans and celebrating. It isn't about, you know, taking the moment uh, and, and making the moment about you, even though, as I say, you've never scored a Premier League goal. Significant mark for you. But Zinchenko's thoughts weren't on that. Zinchenko was thinking about the team. He was thinking about the collective and he was displaying the type of attitude that's made him so popular, not just in the dressing room, but with the Arsenal fans as well. Because he turns around and he runs straight back to the halfway because he wants to get the game started again, because he knows that Arsenal need to win this game, because he knows that that is a huge boost, but the job is not done yet. And that's the kind of attitude uh, that you want to see uh, from someone uh, leading your team, one of your leaders within the group. Look, just before we continue uh, on to the third and fourth goals and then to talk about some individuals and to take some of your questions uh, from the live chat as well, if I could just ask, please do leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already. It really, really does help. I can see that there's over three uh, to five of you with us right now. Uh, so please do like the video. Let's try and get it up to 150. That should be an easy milestone to reach. Also, subscribe to the channel if you are brand new as well. That really, really helps. Um, and we'd love to progress towards that 30K mark uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, so, yeah, please like, subscribe. You know the drill by now. Um, we're going to take a very, very short pause. And when we continue, uh, when we come back, beg your pardon, uh, we're going to continue with the Arsenal Aston Villa chat. Welcome back to the podcast. So at this point, we're at 2-2. Aston Villa, having taken the lead twice, have been pegged back by Arsenal twice. What happens next? Well, I think that second half display from Arsenal was fantastic. And again, I think that I say that because I watched it. I watched it after the event. I watched it at a point where I knew the outcome. I watched it at a point where I didn't have the emotional frustration that a lot of you guys would have had when you were watching the game live. But I just thought our passing was much better. It was slicker. It was more progressive. We were working it in between the lines. We were getting people in behind. I thought Saka and White were incredible down the right-hand side, causing uh, Aston Villa all sorts of problems. Saka, by the way, who was kicked off the park yesterday, um, but still manages to pick himself up, dust himself off and get on with it. Ben White, um, had had a couple of poor games before he was left out of the team against Manchester City. I think that's fair to say. Brought back into the side, and I think maybe that was a kick up the backside he maybe needed because his performance yesterday I thought was very, very good. Um, on the other side, uh, Leandro Trossard, not quite as effective as he has been at certain points during his very short Arsenal career so far, uh, but tidy in possession. Uh, received the ball quite a few times out on the left and looked to switch the play early and quickly, which is something you need to do when you're trying to pull a defensive unit apart. So, yeah, um, he was OK. Xhaka, not his best game again yesterday. And, and obviously he came off um, before Arsenal found the third. He was replaced by Fabio Vieira. There was a double change at that point made. He uh, came on Fabio Vieira along with Tommy Asu to replace Xhaka and White. Um, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was much better in the second half. There was a lot to be proud of. We'd created opportunities. We'd hit the woodwork. Um, you know, we were forcing saves out of Emmy Martinez and Arsenal were in the ascendancy and 
you felt at that point that there was only one winner. Now, obviously, Villa went down the other end and had that brilliant chance with Leon Bailey, Aaron Ramsdale making a fantastic save, the type of save that is a match-winning save, really. Um, but that just goes to show that in the Premier League, if you're not efficient, as Mikel Arteta always says, if you don't take your chances, you can be punished because regardless of the difference in levels between a lot of the teams, there isn't a team in the Premier League that doesn't have top quality footballers. That's just the nature of the beast these days. There's so much wealth in the division and in the competition that even the clubs at the lower end, and I'm not saying Aston Villa are that, but even clubs at the lower end have the ability to go out and bring in big players on big fees, on big wages. And therefore, you know, those moments can always go against you. And then comes the goal, the third goal. And listen, we're, we're going to get into Jorginho in a minute, right? That's going to be the next topic. But if I could have handpicked one player to score what was going to be the winning goal, I'd have picked him. I'd have picked him because I think the division that that signing has caused has been really, really difficult to kind of watch unfold. I, I I mean, I thought we were past all this nonsense. I thought we were at a point now where, yeah, you can have your opinion and you can have a view on a player. But ultimately, I thought we were in a place as a football club and as a fan base where we trust in the manager. And so we would express those opinions and we would put across our points, but we wouldn't be toxic or super negative around players like Jorginho, um, who have obviously been identified by the club and by the manager as somebody that can come in and help us. So he hits the strike towards goal. We get a massive slice of luck um, as it comes off of the crossbar. Hits Emmy Martinez straight on the head and goes into the back of the net. But Emmy Martinez had been time-wasting from very early on. He'd been desperate to kind of put a spanner in the works for us. I, I'll never understand why that guy has so much ill feeling towards a club that ultimately put him in the shop window that then led to him going and joining a Premier League club, which let's be honest, was never going to happen before. And then going on to win a World Cup, which again, doesn't happen without him having that FA Cup run with Arsenal and producing during that period with Arsenal. Argentina don't even look at him at that point. You know, maybe they do due to a lack of top quality goalkeepers, but that really elevated his status. And instead of looking back and moaning about the, the nine years or whatever it was before that, in which he didn't get opportunities, ultimately because he wasn't good enough. And when he did play, let's be honest, he wasn't good enough. He should be looking back at it and thinking that was my football in education. That's where I, why I am where I am today. That's why I've had an opportunity to lift the World Cup and a Copa America alongside Lionel Messi. He's got this nastiness about him and it just gets on my nerves he just shows a lack of class over and over and over again Unai Emery's um interview after the game was telling wasn't it about how he feels about the way Martinez conducted himself he made it clear Unai Emery that time wasting was not part of his plan and that ultimately time wasting came back to bite them on the ass because they conceded a couple of stoppage time goals he also referenced the fact that he didn't ask him to go forward. He didn't ask him to go up for the corner and that ultimately Villa conceded their fourth goal because of a decision that Martinez took on by himself that Unai Emery was not in support of. So just signs there that, you know, he is a bit of a loose cannon. He is the type of character that rubs people up the wrong way. And because of all of those things I've mentioned, I'm sure the Arsenal fans in attendance really enjoyed uh, watching that come off the back of Emi Martinez's head and ending up in the back of the net. But look, take nothing away from Jorginho. It's a fantastic effort at goal. His progressive passing in that second half especially was fantastic. It was brilliant. On the ball, he is fantastic. But why I want to have a little bit of a discussion about Jorginho is because I think, although we saw lots of good things from him and although we saw lots of um, you know positives, I think we also saw things that reinforced some of the concerns that a lot of us had about maybe a lack of mobility and a lack of uh, sort of defensive solidarity, maybe, I think is the word that maybe we're looking for here. He does commit to situations defensively and doesn't have the mobility that Partey does to recover. But on the ball, I think he's fantastic. And there's no reason for me why he couldn't play in a more advanced role. There's no reason for me why when Thomas Partey returns, he couldn't play in Xhaka's role, for example, um, 
depending on a game state. I think Xhaka gives you more defensively because of the positions he tucks into. But the point is that in possession, Jorginho is fantastic. He is superb. Off the ball, there are questions to be answered. But what I would always say, and what I said to you guys at the time we signed him, is let's not pretend that Jorginho is Thomas Partey. Let's not pretend that Jorginho was brought in to be Thomas Partey 2.0. Arsenal clearly had another target in mind. Arsenal clearly tried to make that deal happen and couldn't, and therefore had to pivot to someone who they felt could come in on a relatively low cost uh, so that it didn't hinder us moving forward and for the bigger plan, but that we could bring in and that could help us in the interim. Mohamed Elneny had picked up an, a season-ending injury also, which meant that he was no longer available. I don't think we signed Jorginho if Elneny's fit and available. That's the, le- the, the, the kind of margins we're talking about here. I think that Jorginho was brought in because of that and because Lekonga needed to go out on loan. So Jorginho was brought in as a replacement, not for Partey, but for Elneny and for Lokonga. And I think we can all agree, whatever your concerns are about the player, that he is at a much higher level than either of those two. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for your cover to improve. Nobody was saying that Jorginho was going to be better than Thomas Partey or even equal, but we needed to have a higher level of cover in the event that Thomas Partey picked up an injury, which he has. Hopefully he'll be back from it soon. But to have that uh, that additional and alternative option is obviously massive for us. Just before we continue a little bit further, um, 436 of you live with us right now on the show. No reason why we shouldn't have 200 likes. Come on, guys. Uh, hit the like button. Subscribe to the channel if you are new. Uh, I must apologize as well before I forget to add another Slice members. As I said, I wasn't watching the game live yesterday. Therefore, you didn't get your player ratings uh, straight after the match. So I'm going to give you an extra piece of members content on Tuesday this week to make up for the fact that we missed those player ratings and those will return back to normal uh, from next week, of course. Okay, um, let's take it on. What else is on the agenda? Uh, we're going to come on to talk about City's result in a minute. We're going to talk a little bit about sort of the confidence boost that what happened yesterday gives to Arsenal. I mentioned Zinchenko, I've mentioned Saka mentioned Jorginho, talked Martinez a little bit. Uh, what about Martinelli celebrating the goal before he's even put it in the net? That was pretty cool to see, wasn't it? But I guess I wanted to make the wider point about Arsenal's character. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during um, during that um, during that halftime team talk. I would have loved to have seen what went on behind the scenes. I would have loved to have seen how Mikel Arteta flew off the handle, because I'm sure he did, because he was very animated on the side. Um, you know, he was he was really intense. He was really not happy with the performance that he saw from his team in the first half, you'd imagine. Really wanted to see more in the second half. He got that. And there must have been some harsh words exchanged during the break to spark that response. Now, obviously, the manager has to inspire, but those players have to go out there and carry that out and they have to go out there and raise their level. And they did. And they never stopped. They never stopped pushing for that winning goal. It wasn't a case of, you know what, we've had a bad day. It's 2-2. Come on, guys, let's get out of here with the point. There was none of that. Arsenal knew they had to win yesterday. Arsenal knew that they needed to get a victory under their belts, ASAP, to get back on track. And they knew that psychologically that would be huge. They knew that if they went back top of the league, although they would have done that with a point, but if they did it opening up another gap on Manchester City with that game in hand still, they'd be really putting Pep Guardiola's side under pressure going into their game at the City ground later on that afternoon. So the character, the fight, all of that was fantastic. And listen, when you look at the way things unfolded yesterday, you look at the fact that uh, Manchester City dropped those points. Late equaliser conceded. Chris Wood, love you, by the way. Absolute legend. When you look at that, it goes to show that there will be so many swings of the pendulum in this title race that you, you're a little bit silly to overreact the way that a lot of us did off the back of a couple of disappointing results. Myself included. I'm not sitting here throwing shade at people. Myself included. I did think after the Manchester City game, it's going to be really, really difficult for us to get back on track and to 
um, you know, put ourselves back into a strong position. And that happened on Wednesday. And on Saturday, we're back in a position that's only one point worse off in terms of the gap than we were when we took on Manchester City, despite them beating us on our own patch. So things change in football really, really quickly. And I thought there was a bit of overreaction, not to the Man City game in isolation, but to the period that we had gone through, to the combination of Everton, Brentford and Manchester City together. I kept wanting to put across the context of the season, the wider context, the fact that we are punching above our weight, the fact that we are in a position that very few dreamed of at the start of the campaign. I think that's important because when you apply that context, it can curb your reaction. If you apply the right context to situations, it can have an impact on the way you feel and on the way you react to situations. And Arsenal didn't need us to get on their back. Arsenal didn't need us to be critical. Arsenal didn't need us to be taken to social media, hammering this young team and this young manager also. Arsenal needed us to get behind them. And the fans that were at Villa Park yesterday were fantastic and a big credit to every single one of those because they were behind the team from the off, even when it looked as though we were going to end up empty-handed, even though it looked like at times we were going to have another disappointing day. So credit to those guys because they got behind the team and you only need to see the scenes at full time, the scenes when Jorginho scored to know how much it meant to the players, how desperately they were trying and and to see the... I mean, how many Arsenal players yesterday when that goal went in, went over to the crowd and were reaching for the badge? How many? Pretty much all of them because they feel connected. They feel invested. They appreciate the support they're getting. And we, as a supporter base, have played a massive part in Arsenal's progression. Huge. So let's not be distracted and let's not fall foul to the division that people want to cause among us. You know, let's back ourselves. Let's support our team. You know, we've been on the end of another stupid FA charge as far as I'm concerned. Let's call it out. Let's make a point of it. You know, we called out the decision uh, that Lee Mason made the other day. And I'm not saying that you want someone to be sacked, you know, someone that's got a family and all of that. I'm not saying that at all. But the noise that Arsenal made around that has kind of contributed to the PGMOL taking some action. I'm not even saying that I agree with the action they took. But the point I'm making here is that we can have an impact on so many things. You know, we can create... Uh, subconscious bias among officials by being noisy when we need to be. We can create subconscious bias um, when it comes to punditry in the way that we're reported on. There's so much that we can do as fans to help our team. And it's only a small fraction of what needs to happen for Arsenal to win the league, but there is a part for us to play. And I think we've played that really, really well so far this season. And it was in danger of uh, of sort of changing, I think, or the tide shifting a little bit, you were starting to see those arguments that you get when people are frustrated with their team. But as I said to you guys the other day, going into this game in my Villa preview, I had noticed that, and, and let me let me put this into context a little bit. So I've been doing podcasting for a few years now. Has it been three years, three and a half years, maybe? Um, and at the beginning, I used to find that I'm sure there are other channels out there that will tell you this as well. That when Arsenal lost, although it was horrible as a fan, the numbers on your content, if you were ranting and raving or, or talking about a disappointment, were up here. And when it was a victory, there was a lot less interest because the wider pop football fan population wouldn't even touch it. People used to literally tune into Arsenal channels and podcasts for the meltdowns, for the overreactions. And I've always tried to pride myself on not being that not being overreactionary. I've tried to be measured. I've tried to be balanced. Have I done shows post-match sometimes where I've been a little bit emotional, a little bit touchy? Yeah, absolutely. But that's part of being a fan. But I noticed that when we lost to Everton, when we drew with Brentford and when we got beaten by Manchester City, that the numbers on this podcast took a massive, massive nosedive. And what did that tell me? Well, obviously, it's not great for business, but what did it tell me? Uh, in terms of the feeling of the Arsenal fan base at the moment. It told me that people are so invested at the moment, that people feel so strongly about this young team at the moment, that when we suffer a setback, it, it's a real punch in the gut. And because of that, people don't want to then jump online 
in into a forum or onto a platform where they're going to hear vitriol spouted about their team. People just want to break away from it. People just want to, you know, just take a break because emotionally it's too much. That feeling that wasn't there for years and years and years. So that in itself tells me that we all care again. And I'm not saying that we stopped caring, but I don't, like, I'll be honest, I didn't care as much under Unai Emery as I've cared under Mikel Arteta. Because Mikel Arteta, his values, the way he comes across, the philosophy, the way he's tried to do things, has, has relit a fire in my belly when it comes to Arsenal. And that is really, really important. So, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, that was my point about that. Um, but, yeah, City dropping points, huge, massive. And, um, and it just shows that this is going to twist and turn probably multiple times now before the end of the campaign. So when we do drop points, yes, we'll be disappointed and we'll react in the way that we feel at the time. But the wider context always has to be around the fact that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And Mikel Arteta said that in his, um, in his post-match press conference following the City game. And for me, um, I thought, you know, he, he hit the nail on the head that there was a long, long way to go. And you, you can ill afford to dwell on things in this league and in this division. And thankfully, we were able, by hook or by crook, to get over the line yesterday and move on from that. Now, what I say we've moved on, but we need to move on by following it up, obviously, against Leicester City now. Uh, Salah Houdin says that Shea Given claimed that Jorginho, sorry, claimed that during the Jorginho slash Emmy Martinez own goal, there was an offside because two Arsenal players blocked his view thoughts. Well, the VAR checked that and came to the decision that they hadn't impacted on the game. And this is one of those things where, so why I was so pissed off about the, the Lee Mason thing the other day was not because, you know, there wasn't, was not because of debate and, and not because of the fact that, we, you know, I think that every decision has a black and white answer and that I'm always right and the officials are always wrong. It's because I accept that in football there are subjective decisions. One of them is, is somebody interfering with play? That is up to the opinion of the official making the call at that time. And so whether you agree with him or not, you have to be open-minded and accept that he has an element of control over that decision. And that control is based on what his opinion is. The one that we conceded against Brentford, there was no debate about that. How can you not be interfering with play when you're the one that tees up the goal? So that's why that one was so difficult to take. Things like yesterday, I think sometimes they'll go your way, sometimes they don't. Was Were there Arsenal players standing in an offside position? There was. But I don't think... Um, I don't think you can say for certain that they were interfering with play. Therefore, it's not clear and obvious. Therefore, the VAR is going to leave it alone. And that's that's the way it goes. Maybe we had a, a slight bit of fortune there. Look, we had plenty of fortune with the nature of the goal itself. I'm not denying that for a second. But it wasn't, you know, a really obvious decision that went in our favour. I think it's one that you can debate and one that the other side will put across, obviously, just like we would probably put it across as an argument if it had gone against us. But is it the type that you can get caught up on? Is it the type that warrants the kind of action that the PGMO took uh, following the Brentford thing, where they're literally on the phone ringing up people and apologising and then moving on the referee? No, it's not that. And I think the replay is quite telling. Captain points this out as well uh, in the chat. Watch the replay. Martinez reacts without any delay. He saw the shot. So, yeah. I mean, it's impossible to know what Martinez saw. But, yeah, based on the evidence, I don't think it had much impact on the outcome. Uh, not, It wasn't obvious enough anyway for, for an official to step in and change the decision. Maybe there was an element of what happened to Arsenal as well against Brentford coming into the official's thoughts. Maybe there was, a, and I talk about that unconscious bias that you can create by reacting to things. It's part of the mind games of football. I'm not saying you should cross lines. Um, you know, I've had people coming at me on Twitter this week when I said about Lee Mason saying, oh my God, well, people need to start respecting referees. You only earn respect in any profession if you're good at what you do. And you don't earn respect from being incompetent. And Lee Mason is incompetent. 
has been for 15 years. No question about that. Um, but yeah, maybe there was an element of the officials looking at it and going, well, we, we really cocked up with one of these when it came to Arsenal last weekend. Can we afford to rule against them now against the late stoppage time equal, uh, stoppage time winner? Not saying that it was the wrong decision and they, they cheated, but I'm saying that that will have played into the process, you know, the thought process of the VAR looking at that. Anyway, let's go over to the live chat. Let's take some of your comments. Let's take some of your questions uh, for the last sort of 15 minutes or so of the show. I've got a couple on Twitter as well that I want to touch on because I asked for some yesterday, so it would be wrong of me not to pick uh, any of these up. Let me just find the tweet. Uh, there we go. Uh, that's the tweet. What are we looking at in terms of viewers at the moment? Over 500 of you with us right now. Look at the difference when Arsenal win. Unbelievable. Um, please do leave a like on the video. Um, I'd love to get to 250 likes by the time we end this stream in around about 15 minutes because, you know, there's so many of you watching. Subscribe if you haven't done so already. It really, really does help. If you want to uh, get access to our premium content, the next piece of which is coming on Tuesday, visit Another Slice. And also, please subscribe to my personal YouTube channel. The link is in the description below. I haven't, I didn't make a video on there last week, which is not good enough, but I just had a crazy mental week. It isn't going to be as frequent as this. It isn't going to be as regular as this. There isn't going to be as much love going into that as there is into this, because this is my bread and butter. But I do, from time to time, want to discuss other subjects. And, um, and that gives me a platform uh, to do that. Anyway, um, like, subscribe. You know the drill by now. Uh, start getting your questions in. I'm going to tackle a couple from Twitter uh, before uh, I go over to, um, to YouTube. In fact, let me share the screen for these Twitter ones so that I don't have to look between uh, multiple screens uh, during the show. That's not helpful. Uh, okay, let's take this one from Sasha Brady. The more I see it, the less I like Zinchenko as a permanent left back. I thought we'd be better off for most of today with Tierney as the overlapping. Let me just zoom in a little bit on that. Uh, left back slash third centre back and Zinni free to wander. What's happened to our game inside the channels in the penalty area? But credit to Jorginho for a quality performance. It's a hard one, isn't it? Um when it comes to Zinchenko, because I've sat here for two, three weeks now and talked about the fact that I just don't think it's working in the way that it worked previously. I just don't think it's having the same impact. It's having the same effect. But I also highlighted the uh, the sort of leadership qualities of Alexander Zinchenko, which obviously are important to the team and are obviously important to what we're trying to do here. So I think Mikel Arteta has at times got to know when to to sacrifice the leadership quality for the 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 threat on the outside that Kieran Tierney brings and equally he has to know when to sacrifice the threat on the outside for the leadership and the inverted qualities that Zinchenko brings to the table and I think he's opted to go with Zinchenko more often than not probably because of of both of those reasons because of the leadership but also because he wants to play in a certain way but listen Mikel Arteta as a manager is learning all the time he really, really is. I mean, some of the mistakes that he would have made two years ago, you don't often see him now. And that is a sign of progress, not just on the pitch, but off it as well. The football club is moving in the right direction with him at the helm. Um, I don't really see... Um, I don't really see Zinchenko as a left-back full stop. I don't think I ever have. I think he's someone who plays left-back so that we can get him in the team. And yeah, at times that's going to cause a little bit of imbalance at times it's caused amazing balance though in the way that we've been able to dominate possession and overload teams so it swings and roundabouts but naturally he's not a left back I agree with you on that and I think everybody can see that um Mark says Zinni and Saka both need a rest but can we afford to rest them Eddie looks dead as well hoping for Jesus to return before the European games start now I don't know exactly when Gabriel Jesus is going to return but my gut feeling is that it's going to be sooner than some of us think. I think we're talking three, four weeks now. I don't think we're a million miles away from getting Gabriel Jesus back in the picture. And listen, Eddie is doing an unbelievable job up front. I mean, yesterday, it was unlucky. He hit the bar twice. Um, unlucky not to score. We're talking fine margins. 
um, you know, needed to score the opportunities that came his way against City, I thought. But Gabriel Jesus isn't exactly clinical either. So if you're sitting there talking about the finishing, then I don't think really you can, you know, throw shade at Eddie, but avoid doing it when it comes to Jesus. I think he misses a lot of guilt-edged opportunities as well. I think what you need to do here is, is look at what they bring off the ball and what they bring in possession, which isn't scoring goals. And I think that obviously Jesus's game is a lot more sophisticated. But Eddie's work rate is unbelievable, man. He closes people down. He won the ball back yesterday with an incredible um, bit of closing down. He cuts the ball back to Martin Odegaard, who absolutely should score and puts it wide. And if Odegaard scores that, we're all talking about how Eddie, in the latter stages of a game, having played on Wednesday night, having played all of these games of late, has found the energy to go and win that ball back, to cut it back and to set up what would have been the winning goal. So it's, you know, sometimes it's fine margins as well. And, and that's why managers will always tell you that a lot of the time it's about the performance and the result will probably come after that, that it's a bit of a byproduct uh, of that, et cetera, et cetera. So look at the performance. And I think Eddie's performances um, are much, much better uh, than people give him credit for. Um, but yeah, let's see what else we got here. Um William Orr says, uh, are you concerned that we're tactically a bit too predictable, Harry? Um, do you think that we need to change the way our left back plays to get the best out of our left wingers? Seems like we're just hanging them out to dry. Also, is Jorginho the best signing since Omri in 1999? <laughs> um, look, if Jorginho gets us over the line, if Jorginho makes the types of contributions that help us in the key moments as he did yesterday, then obviously that is a fantastic sign-in and I'm buzzing to have him. Um, as for the way we build up, I think it has become a little bit predictable of late and it's on us to find different solutions. I don't think you should just abandon the way you play because teams have started to suss it out. The, the greatest teams don't do that, but what you do need to do is have alternatives. We do have alternatives in terms of personnel and we've been a bit unlucky not to have some of them available. I mean, for example, Emil Smith-Rowe is a completely different left winger to Gabriel Martinelli or to Leandro Trossard. Uh, Reese Nelson is a different type of winger. And, and we do have these options. Jorginho is a different type of midfielder to Granit Xhaka. Um, you know, Odegaard's different to, to Vieira. You know, we, we do have these options and we've just got to find a way now that the season's getting busy and that we're in the business end and that tired legs are starting to become a factor. We just need to find a way of, you know, just dropping in the right players at the right times without disrupting the wider picture, but also um, keeping those guys fresh and sharp so that when they are called upon, they're at a much better level. I think that's really, really important. Um, right, let's go over to YouTube for some questions now uh, before uh, I disappear off into the sunshine. Tempted to stick the barbecue on today, you know. It's not warm, but it is sunny. Hmm. Also gets me out of um, sitting around in the house and being asked to do things that I don't really want to do on a super Sunday. Might stick my TV on down here in the man cave, like the barbecue outside. I don't know. Giving me a thought live on air. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's go over then uh, to YouTube for some of your questions, some of your thoughts. Uh, before we go, uh, thank you to Raphael um, for your really kind comment. He says, hi, Harry, you're arguably the most hardworking social media slash YouTuber <laughs> balancing with your other areas of work. Well done. Thank you so much, mate. But honestly, there are people out there that do a lot more than I do. Um, I have found it a little bit challenging over the last uh, over this season, basically, uh, to be able to keep across everything, because obviously I have career aspirations as a commentator, as a broadcaster um, that you know, would put me in a wider world than Arsenal. And obviously Arsenal is what I love and what I want to do more than anything else. But obviously I want to progress in that as well. And I have at times found it a little bit difficult, like to keep everything balanced, make sure that I'm keeping everything happy. That's that's the nature of the job, I guess. But, um, you know, touch wood, we're doing it for now. Um, Wes Bird says, and, and I'm going to touch on this because a lot of people have asked a question of a similar nature. Uh, could Zinchenko play in the Xhaka role and should we start with Tierney? What's your thoughts? I think that's an option. And I think Granit Xhaka probably does need a bit of a breather. Um, my only thing is that Granit Xhaka for me is, is very um, 
is very physical. He's a real presence in midfield. And if you take him out of it, especially without Thomas Partey in the side, if you're playing with Jorginho, Zinchenko and Odegaard, is that a little bit too lightweight? That would be my concern. So maybe when Partey's back fit and available, I wouldn't be against that. Um, Zinchenko obviously understands the left-back position to be able to drop into it in the way that Xhaka does sometimes. And that would in turn allow Kieran Tierney if he was playing to bomb on and support. So I'm not against that. I just think you have to do it at the right moment and in the right circumstances. And um, with Thomas Partey out at the moment, I don't think that's the right circumstance. Um, but yeah, hopefully we see a little bit of effective rotation um, because we've got a better squad now. It's still not Manchester City levels, but it's better uh, than it was. And um, and we've got to utilise that. Otherwise, what was the point in... Um, in uh, in going out and bringing in these players. Uh, what else have I got here? Um, Matata says, appoint mods uh, to boost the likes you need. Uh, do you know what? Does anyone, um, does anyone want to be a mod? Let me know if you do. Message me on Twitter, at Chronicles underscore AFC. If you want to be one, I've got no problem. Uh, Marco Biferi, the legend. How you doing, mate? Welcome along uh, to the show. He says, all clear now to post that Emery clip. Go for it. Um, I had a real go at Unai Emery. I criticised him uh, on the recent 90 Min show um, because I just don't understand the hype around Unai Emery. Um, I think he's done brilliant things at Sevilla, brilliant things at Villarreal. Um, obviously, you know, he's he's been successful in cup competitions. I think in league competitions, his record is, is quite poor, actually. And, and I don't particularly rate him. I, I saw him up close at Arsenal when I wasn't a big fan. Don't think he's the, a bad appointment for Aston Villa. But what was annoying me in the build-up to this game, as I mentioned earlier, was that you just knew that if Arsenal dropped points, regardless of whether it was because of Unai Emery or not, that narrative was going to get peddled out. People were going to sit there and they were going to talk about how Emery's better than Arteta and how Emery's got this uh, right and Arteta's got it wrong and how tactically he's outdone him and how we were wrong to sack him. And look, we've got Pep's homeboy now instead of uh, Unai Emery, who's a European trophy winning manager. Let's get it right. Unai Emery would never in a million years have got Arsenal to the position that they're in now where they are challenging for a Premier League title. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of them down to him, others not down to him, others down to the way the club op were operating at that period. But the truth is that Mikel Arteta has taken this club way beyond what Unai Emery was capable of. And um, yeah, and, and I wanted, you know, I went strong on Unai Emery in the build-up to this game on that particular show because it was getting on my nerves listening to people saying, oh, well, you know, Unai Emery's going to undo Arsenal. It's just people looking for a narrative. There's no substance to that conversation. Unai Emery's Aston Villa side have been hit and miss. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're shit. That's the truth of it. And yeah, I just, you know, I wanted to make that point. And yeah, now the clip can go out. Uh, without people uh, coming at me. So, yeah, Marco, uh, I will, uh, yeah, we'll get them to put that out. Um, over 500 of you with me live at the moment, guys. Please, please, please leave a like on the video. Uh, can we get to that 250 mark? If we can, it will be amazing. I'm going to take one more question uh, from the live chat. Uh, let's take this one from Amira. Do you think opinions on selling Eddie are harsh slash driven by agendas against him? The misses recently have been inexcusable, but he thrives when the team clicks, which they haven't been recently. I think I've said this before, um, and um, I'll say it again. I think that when it comes to Eddie and Ketia, we were in a position where we had a budget. We identified Gabriel Jesus as the man we wanted, and we needed somebody to back him up and somebody to support him and somebody to be there and available in the event that Gabriel Jesus picked up an injury, someone that we could rotate. And Eddie Nketiah was a free agent. Eddie Nketiah's contract had run out. Whenever someone's a free agent, they will demand higher wages because they know that the team is not investing anything in them in terms of a transfer fee, and therefore they feel like they've got more space for negotiation. So you often, and Juventus fans will tell you this, Marco uh, who's in the chat will tell you this, a Juventus man, Juventus have fallen victim to that for years. They went through a period where 
They brought in loads of players on free transfers and people were looking at it um, from the outside, uh, from the outside and going, oh, wow, they've got so-and-so and they've got this player and they've got that player all on free transfers. Fantastic business. But the problem was the wages crippled the club because what happens is with transfer fees, you know, you can write them off pretty quickly. It's the wages. It's the constant forking out for someone's unbelievable salary that will that will run you into the ground as a football club. And so, you know, that's the way it goes. But people end up um, doing that because they need to convince a free agent that this is the right place for them. In order to to show a free agent that you want him, you need to offer more than anybody else. You need to lead the way in that. And that's what Arsenal had to do. They had to pay slightly over the odds for Eddie and Ketia. But let me get this straight. If they had signed... Let's say look, we've worked this out before, right? Eddie and Ketty have got a five-year deal. I'm not, I've done this calculation on this show 101 times probably, but I'm going to do it again. So he's on, what is it, 52 weeks in a year? Times that by 100,000. 5.2 million. Now times that by five years, 26 million pounds is the total package that Arsenal have paid for, or will pay if Eddie Nketiah remains at the club for the full duration of his five-year contract, which I don't think is going to happen. I think after two, three years, he'll probably get sick of not being a regular starter when Jesus is around and we'll be able to sell him for probably around about that type of money, 25, 26 million pounds, because strikers always cost a premium. So Arsenal investing over the course of five years, if it even gets to that point where they actually outlay all of that money, £26 million on a striker is not a lot of money. That's just wages. So if you're talking about Arsenal maybe should have gone out and bought someone else in, how much would it cost nowadays to go out and get a decent striker? Minimum £40, £50 million. Then add... £25 million worth of wages over the course of a five-year contract, which most strikers are going to want. Then you're talking about an investment upwards of £70 million in total. This is what I keep saying. Don't be obsessed by transfer fees. Look at the overall cost of the investment. The overall cost of Eddie Nketiah, if he stays at the football club for the duration of his five-year contract, is £26 million. He might leave after three years. He might get sold for £20 million. And the majority of that, that you haven't even paid all of yet, will be covered. You'll probably make a profit. So that's the point I'm making here. The investment in Eddie and Ketia, when you look at it like that and you strip it back and you, you look at it in the wider context of the game, is not this crazy investment that his critics want you to believe. It wasn't a travesty giving him that contract. It was a good move, a smart move from Arsenal Football Club made for a player that they obviously believe in and for a player that, for the most part, has stepped up really, really well in Gabriel Jesus' absence. Has he had some disappointing games? Yeah, he has. So has Martinelli. No one seems to talk about that. Martinelli, for the last three, four weeks, has been completely anonymous. Completely anonymous. Nobody wants to talk about that. There are agendas towards certain Arsenal players and it drives me up the wall. Get behind your team, support your players. Eddie's one of our own. He's a young lad, joined the club at a young age. He's come up through uh, the ranks and he's been fantastic. Back him, support him. Stop getting on people's backs. If you're getting on Arsenal players' backs when they're top of the league, two points clear of the juggernaut that is Manchester City with a game in hand, when are you going to stop? <laughs> like, it, You know, it, it doesn't make sense to me. You can have an opinion, you can have a view, but the way those views and opinions are put across is so, so important. Do it with respect. Richard says, Harry, you wanted him to leave. Yeah, I did initially. I did look at him and think he wasn't going to make it at Arsenal. I did. Not, not denying that. I didn't think he was good enough. I think he's improved immensely. I think he showed us at the end of last season that he improved immensely and that he could cut it in the Premier League when played in the right team. Um, but at that point, I hadn't broken it down in the way I've just broken it down for you now. I hadn't thought about the overall cost. I hadn't thought about the level of investment and how in today's game it's quite modest. What I would argue is that if it were up to me in an ideal world, 
I would like a striker that gives us a bit of a different option. Maybe someone who's a bit more physical, who's a bit more powerful in the air to be different to Jesus. But then the problem with that is at a point now where Jesus is out, you'd have to change your style of play because if your second choice striker doesn't possess a lot of the same qualities and a lot of the same stylistic characteristics, then you have to change it. And Mikel Arteta clearly wouldn't want to do that, doesn't want to do that. But anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> Mike Carpenter makes a great point. It's the same people that wanted us to spend £100 million on Mudrik, who'd scored 12 career goals. There you go. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, we've been going for well over the hour. Great to see so many of you back in the live chat. My God, Arsenal winning makes a big, big difference, doesn't it? Uh, thank you all so, so much. Where are we at on the likes? We're still a little bit short of the 250 that we wanted. Uh, please do leave a like if you haven't done so already. Subscribe to the channel if you are new. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a 90 Min show, and then we'll be bringing you a Chronicles of Aguna podcast later on in the day. Come over. It'll be a much happier one uh, for us. And fingers crossed, United drop a couple of points uh, at uh, or against Leicester as well this afternoon. Go on, Leicester. Get all your good performances out of your system before next weekend. Uh, I'll see you all soon. Thank you all so much. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry C.